And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Father, thank you for this appellation given to those only with whom you are pleased. And thank you that we can become pleasing in your sight through the work of your Son, our Messiah. We pray this morning that you would help us in these days to understand more fully the plans that you have, not just for the church, but for all of your people, even in the coming tribulation. And we ask that this scripture that has been written, not just for them, but for us, that we would more than just hear it, but that we would be willing and eager and wanting to apply it. So, Father, as always, I need your help, and so I ask that you'd come and fill me and empower me and use me, that together we might exalt the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit we ask in his holy name, amen. Would you take the Word of God this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Today, as we continue our study of chapter 7, you can see the title of this morning's message is The Mysterious Multitude. And as we move through this book, the book of Revelation, we're going to come to a few places that we might call a parenthetical section, a parenthesis of sorts. And so the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle John, helps us to catch a glimpse of what has been happening on the earth as these various seals that we've been studying in past weeks have been unfolded. In the first half of this chapter, John tells us of 144,000 Jewish men who, according to Revelation 14 and verse 4, are Jewish people from 12 different tribes of the nation of Israel. And these are people who come to faith during the tribulation period, just as God prophesied by Zechariah would happen at the end of the age. And their mission is very simple. It's quite straightforward. It is to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And so this morning, we're going to examine the fruits of their preaching. We want to begin where we left off, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Follow along in your Bible. After these things I looked, behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation! to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore nor will the sun be down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I believe because Jesus taught it and the apostles modeled it, 
that one of the best teachers is repetition. So we're going to review once again, especially for those who are with us for the first time, but also to help the rest of us be able to really put into our hearts how the book of Revelation is unfolding. We saw in the opening chapter, the seventh verse, that the theme of this book is that he is coming with the clouds. We also saw in Revelation 1 and verse 19, the outline of the book. It's one of the few books in the Bible where God gives us a divine outline. In verse 19 of chapter 1, perfectly follows the entire book. We read there, therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. The things past, He writes in chapter 1. He gives us that glorious vision of the resurrected Lord. And it's a magnificent picture that we are given of Him and all that He is like and what He's doing. Then He writes the things that are. That's chapters 2 and 3. And so He addresses seven specific churches that were functioning and meeting every Lord's Day in the first century. And then he is writing beyond that, beginning in chapter 4, about the things after these things. He's writing about the future. After these things, that is, after the church age, after the seven churches, he's describing what is happening in the future. In fact, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, it begins after these things. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And we saw that expression was a picture of the open door for God to let the church in. And so John is in heaven, and he's there with the 24 elders who are a picture of the raptured church. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. It's like he doesn't want you to miss it. Twice over in the same verse, metatata, after these things. That's the last phrase in 119. It's the opening of verse 4 and verse 1 and the closing of verse 4. He's signaling to us by this structural marker of sorts that we are entering into the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. And then in chapter 4 and verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones... I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Now, I'm not going to review all the various entities that are found in the fourth chapter, but it is critical that you understand the identity of the 24 elders. What's kind of interesting is that if you compare this vision of the throne of God that Isaiah has, it's found in Isaiah 6, or the vision of the throne of God that the prophet Daniel has recorded in Daniel chapter 7, if you compare those two visions with the vision of the throne that John has, they are identical with one big exception. Neither the prophet Isaiah nor the prophet Daniel mentions 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. And really, it's a clue to understanding their identity because the Bible teaches that the doctrine of the church is a mystery, something that was hidden during the Old Testament age. Let me dust off your minds with that truth. Remember when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in the second chapter, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, speaking of us Gentiles, you who were formerly far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He elaborates on this mystery in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Listen to this. That by revelation... There was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here's the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when the New Testament uses this very important word mystery, it's not referring to something eerie or inscrutable, but rather to a truth that was hidden in the past, but has been made known in this age by the apostles. A mystery, in essence, is a, a sacred secret that's unknown to unbelievers, but known to those believers who know their Bible. And it's treasured by the people of God. The mystery specifically is God at this time in human history is not working exclusively through the Hebrew people, but he's working through the church, a united body of both Jew and Gentile together. And so this group of 24 elders is problematic for those Christians who make the catching up of the church and the second coming one single event. They're called post-tribulationists. They think that the church will be here for the great tribulation and that the rapture, the word catch up, the harpazo, doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation. And then I suppose we come and make a U-turn and come back to rule and reign. So they attempt to identify these 24 elders as either being angels or tribulation saints or the people of Israel. But again, look at Revelation 4 and verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on these thrones. And notice how they're clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, we learned in attempting to identify who these 24 elders were that it's helpful to know first that the number 24 in Scripture is a representative number of a large group. We studied a number of different significant numbers earlier in our exposition of Revelation and what they mean and their significance. For instance, in 1 Chronicles 24, there are 24 officers of the sanctuary which represent 24 divisions representing thousands and thousands of Old Testament priests. Likewise, in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, there are 24 divisions of singers in the temple representing some 24 mass choirs of singing. There's the biblical basis for a choir right there in the Old Testament. And as we'll see here, when we come to verse 11, these elders cannot be, these 24 elders who are represented of a large group, the church that has been caught up and raptured. And so beginning in chapter 4, there's no mention of the church until you come to the 19th chapter when Jesus comes to rule and reign. First, he comes for his saints, but then he comes back with his saints. Now, there are saints that are mentioned between 4 and 19, but they're not church saints. They are people who have become saints, tribulation saints, during this seven-year period. But when we come to verse 11, they cannot be angels, because these two groups are distinguished. Look at verse 11. It says, all the angels 
were standing around the throne and around the elders. And clearly, these cannot be the people of Israel, since we're going to see that they enter, just as we studied in Daniel, into national judgment during this seven-year period to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And neither can they be tribulation saints because of what we're going to read this morning in verses 13 and 14. So clearly, the 24 elders represent the church in heaven because the body of Christ has been caught up. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. One of these days, the last Gentile is going to be saved. And the father is going to say to the son, go get your bride. Could happen today, somewhere on the planet. The last Gentile believer will embrace Jesus as Lord, and he will come for his bride. Now, the church has been raptured before the coming wrath of the Lamb. We've been studying the wrath of the Lamb in the sixth chapter, those sealed judgments. And God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And we studied in Revelation 5 and verse 10 that the church, these 24 elders, are called kings and priests, and not by accident. There are only three personages in the Bible that are called kings and priests, Melchizedek, in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus, who is not only a king and a priest, but also a prophet. He's the only one who fills three offices, prophet, priest, and king. But then the church, in chapter 1, the body of Christ are called kings and priests. And so it's not by accident that the 24 elders here in heaven are representative of the church that has been raptured and rewarded and waiting to come back with Jesus. And so again, they're not mentioned again until we come to the 19th chapter. That's not accidental. Now in chapter 4, if you remember, we see God the Father sitting on the throne and the multitudes of people worshiping Him. And John sees heaven arrayed like a courtroom. And the participants there realize what is about to happen. Heaven understands what God is about to do. And so they are giving him glory and honor and power and praise. And then when you step into the fifth chapter in the same courtroom, we are introduced to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, that's Jesus. And beginning then in chapter 6, we see the unfolding of the wrath of the Lamb. He who is worthy, who alone by his own shed blood on Golgotha is given the scroll, he alone is worthy to open up the scroll and to reclaim what God had initially given to Adam. God gave to Adam, and by application and extension to you and me, dominion over the world. And when Adam sinned, the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, all sinned. So you can't blame the sin nature that you inherited from your parents on Adam. You were in and with Adam when he sinned. And so we're born in iniquity. By nature, by birth, by choice, we're all sinners. And so when Adam rebelled, we rebelled with Adam. God had given him dominion, but in essence, he lost the farm. And so we studied 
how Satan and the temptation of Christ offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world. And it's never disputed. It's a legitimate offer because Satan achieved and secured what Adam had lost. It's never disputed. That usurper is now called the God, small g of this age, the prince of the world, the prince of the power of the air. But Christ by his death on the cross, redeems it. He has paid the price, and so he alone is worthy. If you're with me about a decade ago, we studied the book of Ruth, and we worked all the way through it, and in the last sermon, I went through all the typology that is found in Ruth. A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. And so we learn a lot about Jesus and the church and God's future work, through types. There are pictures in the Old Testament. They're concealed, but they are revealed in this age. And if you remember Boaz, he is the kinsman redeemer. There had to be a a near relative that could redeem the land and with the land, Ruth and Naomi. And the only near relative um, was one other man. He was not interested. And so Boaz comes along, and as the kinsman redeemer, he secures the place that he so earnestly wanted that he might take a bride. And so he takes Naomi the Hebrew, and he takes Ruth the Gentile under his care. And so you have a picture by type in the Old Testament of what the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, God had to be a near relative, so to speak. And so the second Adam from above takes on our humanity. That's what we're celebrating in this season, that God became a man in order that he might redeem us. So now in chapters 6 through 19, we have a detailed record of how he is going to secure what he obtained at Golgotha. Here's a chart that might be helpful to you, giving us the order of events. Again, the next event on God's calendar is the harpazo. It's the Greek word for caught up. We shall all be caught up. And we call that the rapture. It comes from the Latin translation of the Bible. People say the rapture is not in the Bible. Yes, it is. It was in the Latin Bible. It still is. But the Latin Bible was the one Bible they used for a thousand years. The only translation the church had for a thousand years. It's incredible. And so we have all these Latin terms even on the window behind us. The church is caught up. We meet Jesus and we face the judgment seat of Christ. Not to see if we go to heaven. That's settled the moment you call upon Jesus in faith, but to see how you will spend heaven, what your rewards will be like. It's called the Bema Seat. And then after the Bema Seat is the marriage supper of the land, and we come back with Jesus at the second coming. During this seven-year period, it's called the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's divided into two parts. Uh, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, times, times, and half a times, all synonymous terms to describe these two halves. The first half is tribulation. It's even called great tribulation in Revelation 6. But something happens in the middle of the tribulation. You see it there on the chart, A period, O period, D. That stands for the abomination of desolation. And when that event happens, it becomes super great tribulation. Tribulation like the world has never seen. We've been studying this tribulation and the seal judgments. But it's lightweight 
compared to what we are going to study, what is going to follow. And there will be 21 specific judgments that we will see. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, don't miss this, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So the reader, not just in this century, but during the tribulation period, they're going to be reading this prophecy that Jesus gave there in the Mount of Olives. He ascends to heaven from the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives at the second coming. And he said there's going to be an event in the middle of the 70th week that Daniel records. Jesus didn't see Daniel as a historian. He saw him as a prophet. The critics of our day say Daniel is too specific. He had to have written after the fact. Well, they're differing with the Lord Jesus, and I'm in Jesus' camp. In either case, there's going to be 21 judgments and seal trumpets and bowls. Now, last week, I introduced you to this next chart. If you'll bring it up for me, you will see the parallel between Matthew 24, where Jesus meets with four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him about his return from heaven. And what is so fascinating is that Matthew 24 perfectly parallels what we are studying in Revelation 6 and today in Revelation chapter 7. Jesus spoke of false Christ. That was the first seal. That was the first horseman of the apocalypse. See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, I'm the Christ, and will mislead many. The church is brought up into heaven through the open door, and the deceivers come like never before. And the epitome of all the deceivers, the lead deceiver, is Antichrist himself who comes on a white horse mimicking Jesus because he comes back on a white stallion as well. Jesus went on to tell his disciples in verse 6 of that chapter, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's the second seal. That's the red horse of war, which will be a time of unparalleled war upon the planet. War will be on everyone's lips. Constant rumors of another war to come as they see war after war. Then Jesus moves to the third trauma that we saw in the third horseman of the apocalypse when the third seal is broken. And in various places, there will be famine. That's the black horse of famine that we studied and the hunger that he brings. Then comes the fourth horseman on an ashen horse, on a pale horse, depending on your translation, where there will be worldwide pestilence and death. And so the fourth seal corresponds to what Christ had said there, that in various places there will be earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. We are not in the birth pangs. People like today say, oh, look at all the earthquakes and look at all the famine and this must mean we're, you know, in the tribulation or no, no, no. The birth pangs that Jesus is speaking of happen in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Now, it is true we're seeing in a lot of incredible things today that remind us that the water is soon to break, that maybe we're near full term. And then when the water breaks... Look out, because the woman is going to go into full labor. 
And they, in the fifth seal, it says, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another. Again, that almost identically parallels what we saw in Revelation chapter 6 with the breaking of the fifth seal. And then Jesus adds, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so what do we read when the fifth seal is broken? These saints, these tribulation saints who maintain their testimony who would not renounce Jesus. They would not embrace the Antichrist, and they suffer death. They are beheaded. Again, that will be the form of execution. It's fascinating to me that that form of execution has been reintroduced. We have not seen it since the time of the French Revolution, but it is here in the 21st century where Christians, believers in Yeshua and Jesus, are being beheaded once again. But they will maintain their testimony. The one who endures to the end, speaking of tribulation saints, they'll be saved. Now, you're not saved by perseverance. But the one who is saved will persevere. That's the teaching of the New Testament. You will never, ever, ever renounce Christ. Then we studied the sixth seal. But that interestingly, remember when the sun is darkened and the moon becomes like blood and the stars, the asteroids, probably asteroids fall to the earth. He doesn't mention that at this point in the Olivet Discourse. Probably because he wants to highlight the time it happens again. In fact, it's going to happen a couple of times during the seven-year period. But the principal time it happens is immediately after the tribulation. And so at this point, though, he doesn't highlight it, but he does, in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, give some general information about it, where he says there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Then Jesus makes this statement, and this is where we are today. In Matthew 24, 14, 2415 is the abomination of desolation. When does that happen in the seven-year period? In the middle. So we're not at the middle yet. 2415, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, sometimes you will hear Christians say that Jesus cannot return until the gospel goes out to the entire world. I hope you know that that is not true. Jesus has never needed anything to happen for him to come and catch up his church. There's not a single prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled in the history of the church since the day of Pentecost that needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back to rapture his church. All kinds of prophecy that need to be fulfilled for the second coming to happen. And so, yes, this gospel will go out to the whole world, and then the second coming will happen. And when is that going to happen? You know, you'll hear missiologists say, well, we've got to get the gospel in every translation. We have a speaker coming. He worked with me several years when I was at Duke University. He was in my Bible studies, and Dan Scribner will come. He's uh, the person who for the last 30 years, has cataloged every unreached people group in the world. And God is using them in a phenomenal way. And the Joshua Project and the information they supply is used by every mission agency in the world. He's going to be one of our speakers. I'm very excited that he is able to come this year to present to us. But he reminded me yesterday that there are 1,700 languages 
that still need to be translated that people might have a copy of the Scriptures in their language. Now, you'll meet some missiologists who will say, well, Jesus can't come by until we get all the Bibles translated and everybody can hear the gospel that way. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Now, should we try to put the Bible in every language and tongue? Absolutely. We're doing it as a church family with the Pacunas who have never before had any scripture in their language. And because of your generosity, three Old Testament books are being done. They're almost completed. And then in April, we'll go to three New Testament books for the Bakuna people. But what the church hasn't done in 2,000 years, God is going to do through 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the time of the Great Tribulation. So if you remember, chapter 6 ends... For the great day of their wrath has come, and who, who is able to stand? And the answer comes in the seventh chapter. Look at 7 and verse 1. And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. On this passage... You see four angels depicted as standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back something. We studied last time that this does not mean that the Bible teaches the world is flat and that there are four literal corners. This is an idiomatic expression. It's an expression that we use even to this day. I spoke to my friend in Israel this week. I could have said to him, what's happening in your corner of the world? It's an expression that's used here in Revelation 7 to refer to the remotest parts of the earth, and the context will bear that out as we go through this passage. Every section of the globe through these 144,000 are going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that idiom is no more unscientific than when the weatherman speaks of the sun setting. We know the sun doesn't set. We know the earth rotates. It's just an idiomatic expression. And these four angels are commanded to hold back the four winds. And living here in a section of the world where we get hurricanes, most of you know something about the devastating power of wind. And that destructive power is going to be unleashed through the four angels who will blow the four trumpets. But this fifth angel who steps up to the plate tells them to hold it back. Look at verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Angels are ranked and organized. And this fifth angel has, we're told, the seal of the living God. And with a phonomega, we get our word megaphone from it, with a loud voice, he tells these angels to hold back their judgment. Typically, through the revelation, they are unleashing judgment. But on this particular case, they are called to stay the judgment, to hold it back. And the things that they are called to hold back are precisely what the four trumpets are going to bring on the earth. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And if you were here last time, we studied from Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that the word seal is used in the Bible as a mark of ownership and a mark of protection. It's no mystery to the New Testament saint because the Bible says when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. For how long? 
for the day of redemption. You're marked as God's. That's why Paul can say, the Lord knows those who are His. They have His seal. If you've been born again, you have the seal of God upon you. You are marked and you are protected for the day of redemption. Doesn't mean that you can't be persecuted or lose your life. But this seal has an oomph to it. These 144,000 can't die. No one can take their life. Why? Because God Almighty wants them as a God who loves to see people pray, uh, saved. He wants them to preach the gospel without any hindrance at all. And that's the major difference between their seal and ours. They are supernaturally protected to preach the gospel. And you will notice that there are 144,000 who are specifically identified in this verse as the sons of Israel. Here it is, Israel, front and center. The United Nations met yesterday. They're going to meet again tomorrow over this new decision concerning the city of Jerusalem. It's not by accident because Jerusalem, as we study through the Revelation, is going to play a major role in end time events. 85,000 Palestinians protested yesterday. It is only the start of what we are going to see. It's Israel front and center. And that may be surprising to people because now, unfortunately, though a minority of evangelicals still has the political ear of a lot of people, the position that I am teaching you, while it was standard fare in Bible-believing churches 30 years ago, it has become a minority view. The view that God is done with the Jewish people, that the church is the new Israel, and that is not true. God is not done with Israel. Salvation history from beginning to end has happened on this piece of property we call Israel, the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. The land of Israel. It was there that the Messiah was born. It is there that the Messiah is going to return. Because as we saw last time, God cut a covenant, a one-way covenant, an unconditional covenant that had nothing to do with the obedience of Abraham or his offspring. That God is going to complete salvation history through the Jewish people. And notice that they are from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Here they are. Here are the tribes listed on this next slide, which is kind of interesting. Again, they are just from Israel's tribes. But as you read this list, what you immediately discover, if you read it carefully, there are two tribes that are missing. As you read the various lists of tribes in the Bible, two are missing here. Neither the tribe of Dan nor the tribe of Ephraim are represented. Dan is not here, and there's a reason. Remember Jacob on his deathbed? And by the Spirit of God, in Genesis 49, I preached a whole sermon on it, he speaks a prophecy over his 12 sons. And concerning Dan, he refers to him as a serpent. Because he knows by the Spirit of God that when they get into the promised land, he is going to do the work of a serpent. That tribe will introduce idolatry into the nation. If you remember, they get into the land, eventually the kingdom of these 12 tribes split into 10 northern and 2 southern tribes. And amongst the 10 northern tribes are Dan and Ephraim. 
And Dan introduces idolatry to the people. God said, listen, you are to worship where my name dwells at the place I appointed for you to worship, which was only one place in Israel, and that was in Jerusalem. But not wanting to lose any of the 12 of the 10 northern tribes, Jeroboam, or Jeroboam if you prefer, set up two places of worship. Uh, let me read it to you. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 12. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, is it too much for you to go to Jerusalem? Of course it is. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so he set one in Bethel and one in Dan. Jeroboam put a golden calf in Dan and one in Bethel. And so you'll see the expression from Dan to Bethel repeated in the Old Testament, describing the northernmost point of the ten tribes and the southernmost point. No need to inconvenience yourself and go down to Jerusalem. And of course, him not wanting to lose any of the Jewish people. But we saw in spite of that, some went anyway, and that the ten tribes are not lost at all. But they had these two places of worship. And if you went with me last time to Israel, we literally went to the place where they worshiped in the northern section, where the tribe of Dan, the land God gave, and the archaeologists have unfounded the very town and the place and the altar where this golden calf was placed. And again, God had warned about such idolatry. Right when Moses, at the end of his life, gathers all the Jewish people, before God takes his life up there on that great mountain, we read in Deuteronomy 29, I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, meaning not just with you Jews who are present here today, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among you, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. What God said through Moses, he meant. God says what he means, he means what he says. And because idolatry is serious to God, and because they set up these golden calves in Dan and Bethel, God excludes the tribe of Dan as being the part of those Jews who will be sealed and protected to preach the gospel. Now, greed is a form of idolatry, Paul says. Sexual immorality is a form of idolatry. We think, oh, you know, I'm not an idol worshiper. Understand, though, a third of the planet still has this old-fashioned bow down at a tree, bow down at an object kind of idolatry. But we in America have idolatry ways of, idolatrous ways of our own. And God made it very clear that there would be consequences to these people if they did that. And Ephraim did the exact same thing. 
They also established places of idolatrous worship. And so you will not find these two tribes. Now, God's not going to abandon his people. He made an unconditional covenant. But there are consequences to the Mosaic covenant if you disobeyed it. And before we're done with the revelation, we're going to see those two tribes restored. Okay, are you with me? Now, that's all backdrop, background, some of it reviews, some of it new. Let's get into the meat of the chapter as we look at this mysterious multitude. First there in your note-taking outline, I want you to think about the description of this multitude. In verses 9 through 12, John gives us a detailed description of this massive number of people. And he highlights two characteristics. First, the number in this multitude. Think first about the number in them. Verse 9, after these things, I looked... Behold, a great multitude which no one could count. What a wonderful image of the grace of God. Paul will write, it is a trustworthy statement deserving your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. By the way, why does Community Bible Church exist? Why do we exist? Why should we exist? According to the Bible, there's only three reasons. Number one, to exalt the Savior. Number two, to edify the saints. Number three, to evangelize the lost. That's why we exist, to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. And if we stop doing those things, God will take his hand off of us. A lot of churches just want to get together for mutual edification. Teach me the Bible, but don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to serve through my gifts. And certainly don't ask me to win the loss because we pay you to do that, preacher. No, you don't pay me to win lost souls for you. Now, I'll equip you and I'll help you and I will lead by example. But I can't do what God has called you to do. But God is a God who delights in the salvation of souls. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Peter said, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, because he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you see the heartbeat of God being expressed here in verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. Now, the truth revealed in verse 9 is that after Christ comes for his church, there's a multitude of people so big that John doesn't even begin to count them. And they are called saints in other places here in the Revelation. They're not church saints, but they are saints. They're what we call tribulation saints. The word saint, hagaioi in the plural, means to be set apart. And God has set apart people in every age. A saint is not a saint because of things he's done. A saint is a saint because of something he's received. He has received the gift of God, which is eternal life. And there's a great number of people who are saved during this time. Now, occasionally in the Bible line, I've been asked, well, if the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is removed from the world, during the time of the great tribulation period, then how on earth can people come to know Christ? And the answer is, in the same way they came to know Christ before the day of Pentecost. It is true that the church will be removed and the restrainer in terms of holding back sin will be lifted. 
But the Holy Spirit will still be working in the world, convicting men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because no one seeks God, no, not one. And just like in the Old Testament, a man didn't automatically seek God. God stirred his heart by a work of the Spirit. In every age, he is at work. And so when the present age ends, when the church is caught up and raptured, his influence will continue. And so a great multitude, which no one could number. Now think about this. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. A few days later, 5,000 men, excluding the women and children and their families, were saved. Probably 15 to 20,000 people on that day. And as powerful and as magnificent as that expression of power was in that day, it doesn't even begin to compare to the number that is going to be saved during this time frame. Multitude of millions of people across the planet. Now, you might be listening today and thinking, you're listening, live streaming, maybe sitting here or in one of our campuses, and you say, well, that's good news because I haven't received Jesus yet. At least I'll know if this rapture happens like you say, Pastor. I'll have time to get my heart right and receive Jesus then. No, you won't. Hold your finger here. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You're in the book of Revelation. Go to the left. If you find any book in the Bible that begins with the letter T, you're in the section. All the T books in the Bible are in the New Testament. They go from long to short. That's how you remember the order. The word Thessalonians is shorter, longer than Timothy, longer than Titus. So you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, followed by Titus. And they come right after Gary eats popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So I had a guy in my Bible study. His name was Gary. He said, this is how I, I told him the great electric power company. He said, no, it's Gary. It's popcorn. Okay. So you got Gary eats popcorn, the tea books in the Bible. There's nine books in the New Testament right there. You'll learn that in the discovery class if you've been there. Right, Matt? Do we still teach him that? Yeah. He's shaking his head. Yeah. Amen. I think he, I think he means that. Anyway, second um, Thessalonians two and look, if you will, um, he is describing the coming of the Antichrist in verse 10. And he says that when the Antichrist, he's called the lawless one, when he comes, his son of perdition, he will come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now, you read a verse like that, and you might ask, how can God delude a person? Does that not seem unfair? Well, first of all, it is very clear that those who are deluded are those who had an opportunity to respond to the gospel of grace, but they did not respond. Verse 11 begins with the words, and for this reason, looking back at verse 10, to those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So behind the great delusion is a great refusal. It's identical to what Jesus taught in John 3.19, where he instructs us that people will refuse him because of their great love for sin. Verse 12 plainly says, notice, they took pleasure in wickedness. So the Bible is clear. What the King James calls a strong delusion is going to be sent on those who would not believe because they love sin more than they love the Lord. And you will meet people like that today. They'll, you talk to them about God and they're not interested. 
Why? Because they love sin more than they love the light. And so with that said, the Bible is very clear that while people get saved during the tribulation, let Scripture interpret Scripture, people who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture of the church will not be part of this great multitude that give their lives to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear over that. And so I know there's some popular novels of this guy who's living with his wife and she's a believer and all of a sudden she's gone. She's been raptured. Woo! I guess I, she was right and he gives his life to Christ and he gets saved. That's not true. No, 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 no. God is very clear. Once these events happen, the church is taken out. We saw in the opening chapter, it happens very fast. God just begins with the signing of this firm covenant, this seven-year period. And we don't know if it's days, weeks, or months after the church is raptured, but it's very quick. And God is warning us that people, verse 12, in order that they all may be judged, condemned, damned, who did not believe the truth. Why? Because they took pleasure in righteousness. If you are listening to me somewhere over the radio, television, on the internet, and you are not a believer... It is very foolish to play Russian roulette with your soul thinking that you're going to become one after the church is removed. And if you die lost, you will pay the penalty of what chapter 1 and verse 9 calls the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is a very grimly logical passage if you study it carefully. First, they took pleasure in wickedness. That is, they make a deliberate choice. Second, they refuse to receive the love of the truth. Third, the activity of the evil one steps in who deceives them based on choices they have made. And fourth, God says, on them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. Believe a lie. And finally, they're judged for all of eternity. It's a slippery path that begins with a love for evil. And that leads to a rejection of the truth. So you witness to a guy who says, well, I don't think there's a heaven or I don't think there's a hell. Who are you sleeping with, pal? What drugs are you taking? Where are you getting high on? There's always behind it a love for sin. I can tell you there's always a moral issue behind it. That leads to a rejection of the truth. That leads to deception by the devil, which leads to a judicial hardening from God. And that happens today. Jesus said to the Jews in his day, look, while the light is among you, walk amongst the light that, and believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And because they refused, Jesus said they could not believe. But in a wide-scale, wholesale way, it's going to happen during this seven-year period, and it will result in sealing one's condemnation. So beyond the number of the multitude, let's also think about the nature of this multitude. When we think about the nature of this vast multitude, John highlights three simple facts concerning their origin, their arraignment, their clothing, and their praise. Look at the origin. I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues. Now, the Bible is clear that one of the great functions of the tribulation period is to bring both Jew and Gentile to Christ. 
Jeremiah said in the 30th chapter, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, one of the terms used to describe this seven-year period. But he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. Zechariah the prophet said, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So we learn that these 144,000 Jews are saved. That's a fulfillment of prophecy in and of itself. And they're going to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. What we're trying to do today, through so many means, it is going to be completed in this day. Every single language group in the world is going to hear. You say, how? Through 144,000 Jews? Yes, that's what the text says. Well, they're going to know multiplicity of languages. No doubt it would be like the gift of tongues in the first century. And God will give them the ability to speak all kinds of languages. I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation. That's not Jewish people. All tribes, peoples, and tongues. Nations, that's the word ethnos. We get our word ethnicity from it. He's speaking about the various cultural traditions of the world. Tribes. It refers to very various family lines or clans. Peoples. That's a word used in the Bible to refer to various races, languages, glossolalia. He's speaking of languages, language groups within the various races of the world. A great multitude that no one can count. And so the gospel will be preached worldwide without respect to any people group and people from every walk of life, every language group, every race will be saved. Now, I have no doubt that until Jesus comes back, churches will continue to have their prejudices based on the color of skin, based on educational levels, Based on financial levels, I find it interesting that all the seeker-sensitive churches, they target an audience, and it's usually upper-class, middle, white people. You know, years ago, I invited a man to this church. He said, no, I, won't. I wouldn't go to that church. I said, have you ever been? What, you didn't like the way I preach? Oh, no, 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 no. What's the problem? Too diverse. Now, he didn't use those words. He used some other words. I said, you know something, friend? You wouldn't like being in heaven. What do you mean? I said, 83% of the people on planet Earth are not white and Caucasian. In heaven are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue standing before the throne. Look at their arraignment, clothed in white robes. White robes, picture not what the Ku Klux Klan wants it to picture as they pull verses out of context from the Revelation to teach their wicked ways. No, these white robes are a picture of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is gifted to us by grace. To use Isaiah's words, though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And notice their praise, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Please note, these are tribulation saints. And when they arrive, they don't arrive defeated and weary and worn out, but they arrive there victorious. These are people who, for the most part, as we're going to see, have had their heads cut off. 
but they are waving branches. Remember when Jesus came in on this your day, Israel, the day spoken of by the prophet Daniel, we call it Palm Sunday, a day prophesied hundreds of years before by the prophet Daniel, where Jesus walks in and the multitudes are raising palm branches to, to their king. And they say from Psalm 118, a great messianic son, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But most of the folks in that crowd were pretty fickle. Within a few days, they went from hail him to nail him. But not this group, not this group in heaven. This multitude, millions are giving praise to the Lamb and with a cry with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to His Lamb. These people are saved out of their sin and they're praising the Lord not because they've been delivered out of the tribulation. They're praising Him because they've been saved by the blood of Christ. And they are doing what saved people do. They are worshiping the Lord. And they also affirm God's sovereignty, salvation to our God who sits on the throne. Notice there's no debating about this. There's no question about this. God and God alone is sitting on the throne in heaven. He is sovereign. They recognize that in spite of all that is happening on the earth, He is on His throne. That God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. And they're extending to Him praise and adoration and glory. And listen to me, friend. If your heart never gets excited about giving praise to the Lord, it means A, you never either been saved by the blood of Christ or B, your heart is so calloused and indifferent, you can't wait to get out of here and wondering why I'm preaching so long. Listen, when you're born again and you're walking with God, this is the Lord's day all day long. And you're excited about what God wants to do in our midst. Now listen, I don't care how you worship I don't care if you get excited, but just don't tip your cup over. Now, if it overflows, great, but don't tip it over. But I've told you many times, I would much rather cool down a zealot than warm up a corpse. And it's okay to say amen occasionally. If you want to raise your hands and say praise the Lord, that's all right too. Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, we studied them. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Millions and millions of angels were standing around the throne of God. Listen, if Jesus said, if there's more joy in heaven amongst God's angels over the salvation of one soul, can you imagine the explosion of joy as millions of people are coming into the kingdom? And together, these three groups fall on their faces and they worship God. We're told in verse 12, they're saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Heaven's occupants cannot help but give God glory. They give him blessing. They acknowledge he is worthy of blessing. Ulagia is the Greek word. We got our word eulogy. We usually eulogize dead persons. We speak something well of a dead person. They're speaking here of someone who's alive. They're eulogizing the triune God. They give him glory, doxa. We get our word doxology from it. 
They're giving God all the glory. There's no human peacocks in heaven. They recognize they are there by the sheer grace and mercy of God Almighty. They are giving him, ascribing to him wisdom, Sophia, because as Paul says, our salvation expresses the wisdom of God. They're giving thanksgiving, Eucharisteo. We got our word Eucharist around the Lord's table. We thank him for what he has done. They're thanking God for all he's done. They're giving him honor because his name and our day is dishonored and blasphemed and ridiculed and mocked. But in this day, it will receive honor and dunamis, power, because he is a great and all-powerful God in might, which refers to his strength. And this is the only time in all of the Bible where a doxology is written, where it begins with amen and it ends with amen. And it simply means this is the truth. So don't miss it. Now, that's the description of the multitude. I'm almost done. You're wondering. All right. Secondly, there's the deliverance of the multitude. And in describing the deliverance, he highlights two truths. First, they come out of the great tribulation. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? One of the 24 elders is quoted in this verse as asking a question. First, who are they? And second, where did they come from? Now, he's asking this question not because he doesn't know. This dialogue format, by the way, is used periodically in Scripture when God gives a vision or a prophecy in order to teach a question. A question is asked, and then very often the person who asks the question then answers the question. So John steps up, verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, or we might say in this house, sir, you know. It's as if John kind of lifted up his hands and says, I don't know, but I know that you know. He has no doubt that this man knew. And again, it's very clear that these elders are a distinct group of people. These are not tribulation saints because the people he's describing are coming out of the tribulation. The elders are already there in chapter 4, the 24 elders, because the church has been caught up. These are not angels. This is a specific group. He said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So if the elders represent the church, then the multitude here must represent a different body of saints. Literally, the Greek text reads, these are the ones who come out of the tribulation, the great one. The article, not present in some of your Bibles, but here in the New American Standard, the great tribulation. It's in every Greek manuscript. They come out of the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, and they keep coming. It's the tents where they're, it's like a stadium door where they just keep pouring in. The 144,000 are preaching. People are getting saved. People are getting beheaded. And they just keep on coming into the presence of God, saved one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so they come out of the tribulation. Notice too, they come to heaven by the blood of Christ. They come to heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are told they washed their robes and made them white how? In the blood of the Lamb. Now, when we think of putting blood on a white shirt like mine, and yesterday I shaved and I put my white shirt on and I got blood all over the collar and so it was dirty and I had to put another one on to go perform a wedding. We think of blood making something dirty, not in the mind of a Jew. 
In the mind of a Hebrew, blood is used for cleansing. If you remember the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, it says all things are cleansed by blood. And so blood is represented of cleansing and it's represented of life. And so there at the Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Israel. And so Old and New Testaments teach that life represents purity, cleansing, and it represents life because the life is in the blood and therefore without the shedding of blood, there is absolutely no forgiveness. And so in Romans 5, it says we're justified, we're saved by his blood, and for that reason, we'll be saved from the wrath to come. In Ephesians 1, it says we have redemption through his blood. In Colossians 1, it says that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. In the opening verses of Revelation, John said to him who loves us and released us from our sins, how? By his blood. And so while it is offensive to many mainline churches, preachers like me who preach the blood of Christ, it's not offensive to the person who's been saved by the blood of Christ. These are people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here it is the blood of the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God who provides that way. That brings us finally to the destiny of the multitude. Beyond the description and the deliverance out of the tribulation by the blood of Christ, he tells us about the final destiny of this multitude. And he highlights two truths. First, they serve God continually. They serve him continually. By the way, here they are in heaven. They're in their intermediate bodies, like Moses and Elijah. They hadn't received their resurrection bodies when they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they have some intermediate recognizable body, which you will get if you were to die this afternoon and go to heaven. But your resurrection body is still uh, going to happen at the rapture of the church and for Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No soul sleep here. No purgatory here. These people are very much alive. And so we are told for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits in the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They're before the throne of God. They're in a place of prominence and honor. We have already highlighted that when you go to heaven, you're not sitting on some fluffy white cloud wearing a woolly robe with a, you know, a rusty halo. You're very much alive and you are serving the Lord day and night and he spreads his tabernacle over you, idiomatic from the book of Leviticus, that the Lord will dwell among his people. And in addition, they are satisfied eternally forever. Verse 16 says, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. On the earth, these tribulation saints were not safe anywhere. They starve, they die by disease because of the judgments that are coming upon the earth because they refuse to take the mark of the antichrist they cannot buy or sell anything and like rabid animals they are hunted down and slaughtered but here they are free revelation 13 will say they won't be hungry there they won't be hurt thirsty there 
They won't be beaten up by the sun and the thirst that had parched their throats during these years that we will study. No, there will be no hunger, no thirst. They're taking, he's taking this from Isaiah 49. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and guide them to the springs of water. And that would have been so comforting to these first century saints who are reading it. And it is so comforting to the saints of God. Persecution broke out this week again in India. Hindu people attacking believers and slaughtering them once again. What a comfort verses like this are, that earth is not our home, that this is a place of temporary rep- reprise for the lamb, verse 17, and the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the waters of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God's people will have comfort and care from the Savior himself who will wipe every tear from their eyes. Will that be you? Listen, if you're a member of the body of Christ, if you've been born again, then you've been studying with me your future. We are looking at the 24 elders, representative of the raptured church, and what they are witnessing And if you are born again, you are witnessing what you are going to be doing with the tribulation saints and the angels and the four living creatures around the throne of God. This is you this morning. But if you're not born again and the rapture of the church were to happen today, you've been in a church where you've heard the gospel with clarity and with power and pungency, and it will be forever too late for you. You will not get saved. The Bible is clear. You say, well, I think I'd go to heaven. I'd hope I'd go to heaven. I'm pretty sure I'd go to heaven. My friend, if you don't know, you're not going according to the scripture. And if you don't believe that, come to meet the pastor tonight and I'll document it for you from the word of God. You need to know that you know that you know. And many people say, I'm 50% sure or 70 or whatever it is. Because in their back of their mind, they don't think they're good enough. Well, none of us are. We all fall short. But if you will come to Jesus and believe the gospel that is defined as the death, burial, and the resurrection, the power of God to save you, he will forgive you. He will give you the gift of eternal life. He will come inside of you and change you from the inside out and make you a new creature. But he will never force himself on you. You must choose whether you will come through the way, the truth, and the life, or whether you will devise your own plan of salvation that will land you in hell forever and ever and ever. You say, well, I'll get saved in this great number after the rapture. No, I documented for you this morning. That won't happen. Today is the day to be saved. Tomorrow may be forever too late. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word a lamp to our feet and our light to our path. I pray today for someone who is here, who's listening, who's never received Jesus. They've never trusted the sufficiency of his death on the cross. Help them this day to call upon you for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, you promised will be saved. Help them to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. But Father, for those of us who have met you in salvation, 
Help us to see what you are doing in the world, what you are allowing to happen, the very things that you wrote concerning Israel and Jerusalem. May our eyes be wide open. May we, like never before, be faithful stewards of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake.